Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 21. Uh, this is a juggler I know pretty well, I'd say. He's been my juggling partner for over 30 years as one half of the Raspini brothers. Today's guest is the one and only Barry Friedman. But before we get to that, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Join the greatest group of jugglers in the world. Join the IJA. As always, I want to thank my engineer, the lovely Karen Holzman, and also all the listeners out there. Get ready for some Raspini gossip, some Raspini recounting, and Raspini reminiscing with Barry Friedman, Drop Everything Podcast number 21. Welcoming to Drop Everything Podcast, the other Raspini brother, Barry Friedman. Welcome, Barry, to the Drop Everything Podcast. Oh, you didn't prepare for this. Shoot. Well, I guess we'll just wing it. We'll just wing it. I think I can look back into my uh, into my gray box, which is my brain, and pick yeah. up some memories and ask you some questions. I think the, the good preparation was 33 years of spending a fair amount of time sitting next to each other. That's good. Exactly. I feel I know you pretty well. I'm sure there are some uh, hidden secrets I'm not aware of, but... Maybe we can dig those out on this podcast. After- I know there's some we're supposed to not talk about, but besides that, yeah, we'll see what we can do. The skeletons in the closet, so to speak. This is exciting, you know, to see that you have a podcast. I mean, you didn't adopt getting a cell phone until like 2012, so this is fantastic that you've 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 really embraced technology. Well, we just talked about that. How I didn't drive till I was 19. Right. I didn't have a cell phone until way after they were available, <laughs> and my computer's a. Uh, run on steam power so it's, it's i know i mean, yeah you were just you were straddling between a conspiracy theorist and uh amish i believe for a lot of years there you're like i'm not touching that all right enough <laughs> light-hearted frivolity to start us off let's talk about before you were raspini brother give us a little background on your childhood and how you oh, first became aware of juggling God. and how this great art entered your life before Raspini's, I'm trying to even think that the BR. BR. Well, let's Raspini. think. That was it. That was at 20. Yeah, I think that was at 20 years old, right? Sure, we were uh, 1982. Well, we probably were involved even before that. I think it's 82. We did our first shows. And when I say we, I'm talking about the host. Yes, and actually, we met. It was before the Fargo convention, which I believe was 1980. Yeah, that was 80, right? So we probably met a few months before that in a park in Sherman Oaks, California. And you had already been juggling for a couple of years by then. Where did you learn to juggle? So juggling came into my life, I was 15 years old. That was probably, what, 1977 at, at a camp I went to called Camp Alonim up in uh, the now very populated and at that time very desolate Simi Valley, California. There was It was a steaming hot day. Our bunk had two choices for the 15-year-olds that day. We had either art or just for this one hour. It was either art in this tiny little box that had no windows and it was you know 100 degrees in there conservatively or juggling by the pool with this guy michael moskowitz who taught that little juggling session he was a counselor I never forgot that name he, uh, and this was by the pool that was what really got me it was a hot day and i thought anything by the pool is better than that arts and crafts room so we went out there he had balls for all of us we were playing with lacrosse balls that had looked very worn they were white at one time and and, and now sort of brownish I still remember those balls and we were by the pool and he was teaching us the whole throw, throw, catch, catch thing. And I thought, geez, this is really fun. I was probably the last one in that group. There were probably 12 of us out there who chose that over arts and crafts. Well, I think I remember being the last guy to actually get the juggle going. In that same group was Michael Boyer, who was the first partner that I did shows with. We were 
ye long and wide clowns. And we did birthday parties in, in uh, Los Angeles, dressed up in bad clown makeup. It was terrible. <laughs> we applied these juggling skills and really basic clowning that we probably ripped off from somewhere to, to birthday parties. And we did some parties in LA and then just, yeah, slowly got involved in doing a little bit bigger shows and Renaissance festivals and maybe an adult show here or there. Yeah, it was that day at the park I, I, at camp, and I was the last one to learn and uh, probably the only one still doing it. Now, were you involved with any kind of athletics? Why do you think it uh, was something that was difficult for you at first? I, it didn't. It just didn't click. I, childhood, you know, we've certainly had our talks on long drives and flights and trips around childhood. It was not a supportive environment for me. It was running away. My parents got divorced when I was about seven. I developed very, very low self-esteem. I was pulling hair out of my head, which may... Uh, affect my current look. And I know your engineer will drop a nice picture of my bald head up there now. But I was, you know, pulling hair out of my head, literally in little tied up knots, having to steal food and clothes and uh, lie to my dad about what was going on where I was living. And it it was terrible. So I didn't have any self-confidence. When this guy taught us juggling, I think other people just had a little more I can do it to their life where my life was, oh man, I didn't know what I was doing at this camp. My grandma had sent me there once a year. She had sent us to this camp. There there was nothing in my life at that time that supported, you can do it, have self-confidence, you can do whatever you want. It was very much a survivalist type childhood. I I think I just didn't have self-confidence because now when I teach people to juggle, I can certainly get someone doing three balls in a a relatively short amount of time. And why do you think uh, juggling stuck? Was there something about it? Because obviously you learned at the camp but then it, you took it home with you and actually put an act together with Mike, who was a fellow camp mate. And why, what happened? How did it snowball like that? Sure, I can tell you the exact moment it happened. Mike and I and Mike Moskowitz, uh, Mike Boyer, Mike Moskowitz and I, this was a camp for Jewish kids, uh, which I didn't practice or anything, but my grandma believed in it. It was somewhat in her family, so she sent us to this camp. And it was on the last night of the camp. The three of us, Mike, Mike and Barry, we did a thing called the Parshat Players. Parshat is a Hebrew word for Torah. So we took that section of the Torah, turned it into kind of a fun little skit, maybe five or seven minutes, and it included some juggling. And I tell you, the people were laughing, they were clapping. It was the first time I had been personally responsible for affecting people in a positive way and making them feel good and laugh. And I never forgot that moment. I still have channeled that moment back many times when you and I have been in potentially stressful situations. I go back in my brain to that moment when I first saw people laugh and feel good about something I did. And it's a... Very powerful. But I knew at that time, I was heading back to the place where I lived with my mom, where it was just survivalist type lifestyle. So that, that was very impactful for me. I never wanted to let that go. And I uh, intimately never have. I remember that story you were telling about when you were in front your front yard practicing ping pong balls and she looked out and saw you. It was not exactly yeah. thrilled. Oh, <laughs> she was horrible. This was my stepmom uh, who I lived with after things got a little better and I moved in with my dad. My stepmom, she would look back and I was doing two ping pong balls in my mouth and the look was one of disgust, who I now have a great relationship with my stepmom, but I think it was just that time, uh, my low self-esteem mixed with spitting balls out of my mouth. I don't think it painted a beautiful picture in her mind of where I was heading. Now, when we met, so you were about 17 when we met, where were you in your life? Were you thinking about, because I know you were, when we met, that Mike was there as well, along with another juggler. Yeah. Now, were you thinking about pursuing it professionally and what were you doing at that time for work and your life at that moment, what actually was happening yeah. with you? I think I was probably still in high school when we met, but living at, at my parents' house and uh, so not really worrying about work. Maybe I was working. I've had one job in my life and it was, well, I think I worked at a pizza place too for a, a couple months, like spreading sauce and cheese on gluten rounds. But I, at that time, I think in high school, I had a friend who owned like a big warehouse and I was driving a forklift. I think I did that. The thought of professional juggling, it was like, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this podcast 
once you find something that feels good and touches some piece of you and you don't have anything better to look back to, that was very impactful. So I, I knew I didn't want to let go of it. I was practicing juggling as you were to the point where the web between my thumb and uh, forefinger was bleeding some nights. That was all I really cared about and all I did. So that's where I'd say I was at and not really studying that hard in school, not making great grades my priority. It was funny. I do remember in high school, though, I was the school mascot. I played oboe in high school, so that wasn't a marching band instrument. So I got transferred over to the big the big uh, cymbals for marching band. And then after the band's performance, I would go sneak aside and put on the wolf suit. No one knew who the wolf was. It was kind of this mystery, but it was kind of an alter character to be able to get out there and really have fun with people and pinch the cheerleaders and just get laughs that way. But then on the very last game, I pulled out torches and they were like, oh, the wolf is Barry because I was juggling <laughs> torches. And you had a uh, celebrity encounter when you were a cheerleader. Wasn't one of the leaders a famous uh, celebrity? Yeah, the head cheerleader uh, when I was in 12th grade and we were both in 12th grade together was Paula Abdul. She uh, went on, of course, to a great life, but at Van Nuys High School, class of 1980, regardless of what she says her age is now in the media. Because <laughs> you guys are the same age, but somehow through the miracle of showbiz, she's like three or four years younger. Yeah, way better PR person than I ever had because she's, I, I think she's turning 50 this year. In high school, we were the same age. She was fun. So the, yeah, she went on very big. So Robert Redford, Paula Abdul, and Barry Friedman, Van Nuys High. Nice. And that's the order I'm sure they list them. Yes, I'm sure. And I'm not even sure if they ever get to third place. Now, so you were working with Mike Boyer. And I remember you guys very strongly for performing at the San Jose convention, the one Barry Backler put on. But you were called, you were called Up in the Air at that point. Yeah, Up in the Air Jugglers. Yeah. So we were all friends, the three of us. I was doing some solo work. I'd worked at the amusement park at uh, Six Flags. Yep. And you guys were doing some gigs. I remember we did one gig as the three of us, which was at a Renaissance dinner at Valley College. Right. I remember that. It was, God, I remember that like it was yesterday. It's hard to believe that was 33 plus years ago, uh, 35 years ago, probably. What I remember from that gig was it was the first time I wore one of those shirts with the puffy sleeves. Yeah. Like a Renaissance pirate shirt, I guess you would call it. Arr! The club handles, because we were doing we were doing club passing, started to snag in the the material of the wrist, you know, the loose material of the, the sleeve. Yeah. And yep. it caused me to drop. And from that, I learned a very important lesson, like never perform in a piece of clothing you haven't practiced in. Which you forgot to tell me on March 23rd, 1986, when we did our first Tonight Show appearance, because I wore suspenders for the first time, and they slipped off my shoulder, and I dropped seven back to back. So there you go. But we're going to get to that eventually. Yes, but uh, just talking about wardrobe malfunctions, and I didn't realize you learned it back then, but forgot to share it with I, me. Well, that was my lesson to learn, and obviously uh, <laughs> I didn't realize you had never worn suspenders maybe at that point. Right, exactly. We don't why look. you chose to wear suspenders in that moment, I'm not sure. It was sort of a typical juggler look, like the bow tie suspenders. Maybe Michael Davis had done it, and I thought I want to do whatever Michael Davis does or something, yeah. Well, whatever. We'll come. We'll come, we'll, we'll come to that, that thought later on. So now you guys are working together. I'm working as a solo but at a certain point, you came to me with an offer for work. What sort of led to that? And explain to the people what the offer was that we ended up doing. Let's see. So Mike, Michael Boyer, for some reason, wasn't able to get on the road, didn't feel like traveling or anything. We were doing the L.A. Renaissance Fair. I think he and I did either one or two years of it back in like 80 and 81, probably. Yeah. And then I said, hey, do you want to go do some of these festivals in the uh, the Midwest, the other Renaissance festivals? And he just wasn't into it. Maybe it was a relationship he had or whatever. You and I had about the same amount invested in our future. Let's figure out a way to do this. Well, I was cooking hamburgers. I was working at uh, Raldo's. 
Right, and I was operating a vertical and horizontal levers on a forklift. So you and I didn't have much to lose. I think Mike was from a, a family where there was a, a little more mentorship from parents and expectations where, where my dad was and, and stepmom were kind of showing me the door as, as you were. It was ready to get. You were probably living on your own already. Yeah, I left at 17. My dad, uh, when I quit high school, I remember him saying to me, are you still here? Mm. What are you still doing here? I'm like, I just graduated high school like three weeks ago. He goes, well, that means it's time to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So for you and I, the idea of jumping into a car and heading out to King Richard's Fair in, what city was that in? Uh, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yeah, it was Kenosha, right, Kenosha. But no contract, no money. Right. It no. was a place we could perform, like show up and you can pass the hat. Yeah, and we were like, oh my God, sign us up. So yeah, so it, I remember 82, the summer of 82 was the first time we did that. I think you and I did the uh, LA Renaissance Fair that year as well. No, I, my first experience with you was oh driving cross country. That's right. And then our first show ever as the Raspini Brothers, because we chose that name on the ride out there. Yep, yep, you're uh, right. Which we got from that 40 years of juggling. Yep. Because when we were coming up, there was always that expression that jugglers were raspy. Yep, that was the word, man. Oh, man, what a raspy trick. Kind of like gnarly. Yeah, kind of like the newer gnarly, or there's probably some newer one that I'm just completely unattached to. We could have been the Narlini brothers or something. But then the book came out, and there was a juggler named Eduardo Raspini, the Don Juan of the circus ring. And we thought, Raspini? Yep. He's yeah. got to be the raspiest juggler of them all. Yes, exactly. That, that was pretty much the uh, thought process. And it sounded Italian. You guys are listening to two... Uh... Two guys pieced together a history, and I completely agree. Yeah, 82 was the first, because I remember Chicago. That was kind of our first real shows. And man, there was some kind of chemistry that happened right off the bat that escalated us through the ranks of that, going from uh, crappy spots to having good spots, having big crowds, eventually turning into a 30-plus year collaboration. And I, I felt the connection that I never felt in that first partnership from the very first show. For one thing, you had stage presence. And, and for the bigger thing, not to say anything about Mike or me, but I, neither of us had the stage presence. The, the differences in character, there was, a, there was a yin and yang, there was a salt and pepper to play with there, whereas Mike and I were just trying to be two of the same guys. Well, I remember what the owner said to us, John Mills. We get out there the night before, and we have no money because we were not wealthy guys. We were just guys on a lark who basically, I didn't even know how to drive a stick shift. And you had a stick shift car. So yep. the first thing I do is teach me how to drive your car. <laughs> because like I said, I didn't get a license until I was like 19. So it was just very recently that I'd even been driving. But when we got there, so the night before, we stayed at the steak pita booth. We slept on the floor. Yep. And we woke up in the morning covered in flies. So that was the, the inauspicious beginning of the Raspini Brothers. Yeah. We went in to meet with the owner. Who I don't even know if he knew we were there. No, I think he had known we were coming. That maybe Cliff Spanger or whoever yep. had arranged this, this job for us. Had said, oh, there's a place for you to perform if you want to come out, out to Chicago. And we get there and he said, boys, first off, let me tell you something. I don't need you here. You can be here. You can work. But let's just know I don't need you. So yep. if anything goes wrong, if there's any problems, basically you're gone. Yep. So that's that was how we started. It was basically... We had no money. We had no place to stay. We had a guy who was saying, you're not even that welcome here. We can be here, but just don't screw up. And if we hadn't made that first show work, I remember the first show, Cliff Spenger, who was a rope walker, told us we should pass the hat before the final trick because everything there was based on hat. We got no pay. It was all we could make in the hat. Yeah, before we got paid for the festivals, yeah. But his thing was he was a rope walker who his last trick was would climb a inclined rope up to like a 20, 30-foot spot up in a tree. Right. Made perfect sense for him. Yeah, it took him a while to get back down. So sure, he would pass before he, he did that trick. So I remember we stopped our show, and our last trick was just going to be like a pass around with knives. 
Yep. This was before we even did the combination part of it. Right. Not really a huge motivator for people to say, oh my gosh, let me give money. But I do remember that it worked. Like we, we got some money, then we did the trick, we passed the hat. I remember thinking, we're going to survive. We probably made 60 bucks or 70 bucks. You're not a huge hat. Mm -hmm. But I think at that moment we realized, okay, we have enough money. We can stay through this experience somehow because it was a six-week engagement. Yeah. And then, of course, we stayed with a, a gentleman who had a very interesting experience because we stayed in, in the basement of his house. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know. If I, well, maybe I'll tell this story quickly. So we're yeah. basically in the basement of this guy's house. It's this damp sort of not a great space, but he was really nice. I think we paid like 300 bucks for the whole. It was no, it was no steak pita booth. No, it was, it was a step up from the steak pita booth. Huge. It had a big, one of those lights, one of those fluorescent lights, a big tube, which I almost immediately broke with a, a misplaced double back cross. Yeah, I remember that. that so luckily he didn't intense. immediately throw us out. Still better than the uh, steak pita booth, but yeah, it was surprising. But then the thing was from Chicago, it led to two more engagements. We didn't get back for 18 weeks. Yeah, yeah, it was huge, man. It was a, that was just a huge chunk of time. Unfortunately, we didn't have any commitments or anything. So yeah, and then we went to Minnesota, where we had our own space. We get there, and the guy goes, "Oh, we, you have your own space." We're like, "Oh, that's a step up." Yep. And where do you put us? Out by the crane. Yeah, we're like, "Oh, the crane. We get our own <laughs> place. The crane." Which was a big, giant wooden crane that had no purpose at all. Right. Plenty of sun and no seating. No seating. Nothing. But we realized that at a certain times. It would be like a throughway. Like people would be going back to see the bird show or going back to see the joust. So at a certain time, there was traffic flow. And for you people interested in street performing, one of the things you're looking for is a flow. Because if you can stop that flow and even get a small core crowd, then you can build a crowd. Definitely. Got to have flow, man. And if it's, if it's time release, it's great. Every busker will tell you this. Grabbing the crowd of one that's leaving a show or however you can do that. But flow is good. Yeah. So we were able to make it work. Once again, we made it work. Then we got to sort of the granddaddy of all the fairs, which was Texas, which was the biggest at the time of all the Renaissance fairs. Yeah, maybe that one was even eight weekends. I forget. It was That was a big chunk. I think we even had a couple stage spots and we're kind of making a reputation of, oh, these guys are a good act. People in that, in that circuit were going, oh, come on back. And so we were getting that kind of... Yeah. But then, so we get back after 18 weeks and my feeling was, okay, that was fun, but now he'll team up again with Michael... And that was yeah. a one summer experience. So yeah. what happened that that led to the breakup of the other act and actually you saying, okay, I'm going to stick with Dan? I think it was after we got back. Because you guys went to Mardi Gras. Was that the... Yes. That's what I was just thinking. I hadn't thought about this in 30 years, I bet you. But we got back probably, uh, what, November, December, early. Did we go do Galveston that first year? Probably not. No, I don't think... Not the first year, but that was a fair that we did... Yeah. It ran like the weekend or two after. Right. It was easy. I remember one year we went to Mexico just to hang out and party for a week between. We went to Isla Mujeres. Yes. Isla Mujeres. Right. Isle of Women. Anyway, so Mike and I went, we got home from that first year. Mike and I had heard about Mardi Gras, that there's a ton of people. We went down there and thought this would be a great place to street perform. And the truth is when we got down there, I had just tasted the other side of performing. I had tasted what it was like to be in a, a partnership that was really aimed at growth. And my story I told myself and seemed very true at the time was Mike was from a family with two parents and there was plenty of money around. He was taking care of whatever he wanted to do. He wasn't out there just like struggling and, and having to make it happen. So it didn't end well. He wanted to party way more than I did. I was like, I saw crowds going by and I was like, I was out at the crane again. I'm like, here's people. He, he wasn't hungry. He wasn't hungry for it. 
Right. Not at all. And you were great. That was, we shared that very much. We were, we had that great line. If there's money and there's people, let's make sure you know, we, we leave with the money. Yes. If money's there and we're there, let's leave together. Yeah. That was, yeah. <laughs> you worded it more poetically, but yeah, we always had that attitude and that was what I had tasted and what I wanted. So it was clearly over. I think I even, maybe Mike flew home or I flew home from New Orleans early. Those were the days when you can just go to the airport and fly home early, even if you didn't have your ID. It was clear that was happening. And then by that time, you and I were talking to festivals again. That would have been 84. We headed into more festivals, did festivals 82, 83, 84, and 85. That was our real learning ground because we would do, I remember oh. one fair in Texas one year, we were doing seven stage shows a day yep. plus two King's Feasts. Yeah. Which was this sort of private lunch that they would have for extra people would spend extra money and they had some pageantry. We would come out in the middle and it was a big long space. And the guy kept saying, Can you stand farther apart? Yeah. Can you guys go further apart? <laughs> At a certain point, you're like, No, we're, there's only a certain distance we can pass. But that was nine shows a day. And it's funny, man. People come up and try and just get a showcase or get on it's God, that training ground is so invaluable. The Renaissance fairs. Penn Jillette was on the, uh, Penn and Teller were on the fairs the same years as us who have gone on to be slightly bigger than we are now. Slightly. But, yeah. yeah, but you know, they, they were training and Penn had a great line. He said, if I'm not coughing up blood Sunday night, I didn't work hard enough. And just loved that line. <laughs> I mean, I really took that to, uh, to heart. He, he gave it all. Teller, Teller never seemed to be coughing up blood. He was just fine. Yeah, he was fine at the end of the day. He didn't, uh, he didn't lose his voice at all. But the thing they also were doing, was they were doing theater shows during the week because we went and saw them a very early Penn and Teller. Yes. They would do theaters. And we actually had Mofo the Psychic Gorilla stay yeah. in our apartment because we gave them some storage space. and Right. Mofo. They would go out on the week, uh, during the week and we never knew what was going on, but they were out there working and meeting people and building and, you know, and, and of course doing great business. But yeah, they would store Mofo. Mofo would always be on top of our TV in our apartment. That was kind of fun. For the first three or four years, I remember it was a summer thing. We would do it in the summers. I'd come back. I'd get work. My last job was at that medical center in Van Owen. I was mm -hmm. five bucks an hour. Uh, we'd go to college. We went to Valley College and took some classes. And there was a very good juggling group that still meets at Valley College, probably the oldest. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, Mike Washlake is the guy who runs it. And I went there. The first time I went there, I had three green oranges. Mm. The total extent of my juggling props, three mm. green oranges. Mm. I used the green ones because they wouldn't split open as quickly as the orange ones. You were, you were always a thinking man. I was a thinker. Of course, I didn't think like, maybe get lift them in the cross balls or yeah, exactly. <laughs> an actual ball maybe might be a better, might last longer than a green orange. But. You're a purist. So we did it for three years. And do you remember the moment when we decided, okay, we have to get off this circuit and see what else there is? Remember that? Oh, dude, I remember it perfectly. I remember it like it was uh, yesterday. I, well, at least my moment when I took it in. I thought we talked about it together, but it was just pouring rain. We were yep. sitting in Magnolia, Texas, like under some tree. We were on a hay bale. I was both getting wet from the rain <laughs> and from the humidity at the same time. And I was like, oh my God, this, you had a great line 15 years later, the first time we ever, there's always these defining moments. And you had the great one on the plane with Howie Mandel when we toured with Howie for years as his opening act. We were like, oh, we get to tour. This whole tour is on a Learjet. So we were in a Learjet with Howie and a couple of other of his guys, me and you and the pilots. It was just this great group of guys. But I remember we were flying to Charlevoix, Michigan from Burbank Airport for our very first gig with Howie. And we were probably like in the air about a half hour and you lean over and you go, okay, this has just gone from the thrill of being in a Learjet to being trapped in a small box. <laughs> and that was the same kind of feeling that day at the, the Renaissance Festival in Houston. It was like, it was clear that it, it, we had, it was time to move. 
Well, people don't realize a Renaissance fair is mostly dirt and hay. Yep. So when it rains, it becomes mud and moldy, smelly hay. So that, that particular year, it rains a lot. And, it, and when you're working outdoors, especially at the fairs, it just cuts so much into your ability to work, of course, do shows, to make money, but also makes it a very unpleasant place to work. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we were saying, okay, at that time we became more aware, I think, also of what professional jugglers did. We were even we were even getting some money from the rent fairs. I think five or seven hundred bucks a weekend or a day they were paying. Yeah, we were making I think five hundred a day. We we're getting a thousand a day a weekend. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Plus we'd pick up like another thousand or so in tips. We were making two thousand a week, twenty five hundred a week. It wasn't bad. Yeah, is that is that all the tips were got in my memory? Yeah. Like, I remember yeah. when we broke five hundred dollars for the day, it was a big deal. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Times change, man. It's, and so, you know, that was probably a good reason to just motivate and keep going too. You just Well, but we knew other guys like Barrett Felker, Dick Franco, Albert Lucas. Right. We had gone to Vegas. I remember taking trips with you to Vegas. Yep. And we'd see five or six jugglers on the strip. Be you, me. I think we went with Kit Summers one time, Tyler Lincoln. And we went and saw Chris Cremo and Albert Lucas. So I think we felt that, re that review shows, variety shows right. were the next obvious step. Yeah, I forget who we saw, but we went to see uh, Jubilee at Bally's one night. And then who was that juggler in that one? Do you remember? In Vegas and Jubilee? Yeah, we went to see Jubilee on one of those early trips. Well, I remember we saw Armando, but he wasn't at the Jubilee. Mm. The ones that really stuck out for me were Chris Cremo and Albert Lucas, because those are the guys that really were the names. I remember seeing uh, somebody at Jubilee, and I forget who it was right now, unfortunately. But I, then I remember years later, we subbed in there for a couple of weeks, and I was like, wow. This, <laughs> it felt like such a full circle to be like on the stage at Bally's in Jubilee. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, a lot of those times where I've just squeegeed the third eye a number of times in my life and just gone, whoa. Yeah, so then we were thinking about getting into variety shows. And I remember, for somehow, this name came up to us, Simone Finner. <laughs> she had managed Dick Franco and Barrett Felker. So when we heard her name, and I might have heard it in Circus Report, because at that time, I was getting this pamphlet called Circus Report, yep, which was actually published out of El Cerrito, yeah. where I eventually ended up living. So, Gosh, and it had names. It had it was mostly a circus-oriented newsletter, but it had variety agents and and this name Simone Finner came up, and I knew somehow that maybe it said that she had booked Nino Fradiani and Barrett Felker and Dick Franco. Oh yeah. So we made contact with her, and she got us our first review show gig, which was at Harvey's in Lake Tahoe. It was supposed to be a six-month gig, and you remember what we were getting paid there? Because I do. Seven fifty a week. We were splitting seven fifty a week and paying $150 in commission. Yeah, 20% to manager and agent, yeah. So we were getting Oof. 300 bucks a week, and we were paying our own hotel. Oh, my God. That's funny. Hey, and you live in El Cerrito, and I'm probably an hour drive from uh, Harvey's. So we, we see we ended up back in the same places. So I was kind of scared. I remember getting to Harvey's because this was our first review show gig. And it's an open lounge. And we're talking open lounge. <laughs> yeah, here's, that's here's right. Here's the stage. It's ringed by a, a row of, of glasses because the bar is right there at the edge of the stage. Right, we're above the bar. Then you have people sitting like at that front table, like at the bar. Then maybe some chairs and tables. And then right open to the casino and you could watch people play blackjack. Yep. It was open. There wasn't even like a, a, a wall that blocked it off from the casino. Right. Nowadays, an open lounge like that will at least have a door and you're in a lounge. Open just means it's free. You go in. But this was this was part of the casino. But it was a real show. I mean, we had a dressing room and there were dancers who were topless. I mean, changing in the room. Well, they weren't. Yeah, they weren't topless in the show. Right. But I mean, we were we were in a small dressing room with girls changing topless. And I thought we've hit show business. This oh, is yes. It. There was that. That was a nice perk. But I remember getting there and, th and being a little intimidated, like, oh, my God, are we ready for this? But we saw the act 
that was in the show that was leaving, and they were called the Gorkus Trio. Oh, right. God, you're killing me, man, with memories here. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember they were doing stuff like an impression, Niagara Falls, and they would do like the, 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 the staggered shower. Right. Niagara Falls from the other side. Just the worst. Yeah. And he did like a die box, that the trick I had when I was a kid doing magic shows. Yep, yep. It slides from side to side. The only good part was there was their female assistant who was quite busty. Mm. And would reach down and grab the props. Right. That they needed. And that was the most entertainment value they had. Wow. I remember thinking at that moment, we could do this. Yeah, we're going to be fine. I think I'll bet you anything that was the first time anyone ever slipped a wireless mic onto us. Did we have wireless? I don't even remember. I know what we were wearing. We, we did have wireless. I know that because I remember one time we had done something with the lead singer in the show. And afterwards, he was really mad at me. And he said, well, that's not fair. You guys had mics. Oh, right. Because what happened was Simone Finner was so old school that right. she thought every juggler should wear a one-piece jumpsuit. Right. It doesn't matter what you do in your act. Wear the jumpsuit because you juggle. As if you were on the Globetrotters or Ice Capades. That's the juggler's outfit was a one-piece blue sky blue i remember eventually i said can't we have stuff that looks like we're wearing like sort of more dress clothes so we got one piece jumpsuits that had the design of like a vest oh <laughs> they were so they were so bad i still remember the blue and white with the spangles on the chest and yeah putting those on and then going in front of a casino audience at ages when we shouldn't have been doing that we were like 23 or 24 we were we were naive we we thought she's our manager yeah yeah she yeah. knows best because what happened three months in, we really were naive because yep. we followed her lead. And what did she tell us to do? Yeah. She says, boys, she calls us and she goes, boys, at night, get on. This is the day before the day off. And she says, get in your car and drive to the airport. I've booked you into a three-month contract in Aruba. You're leaving like two days later or three days later. No, don't tell anybody. Pack up your stuff. Do it at night. And we were like, oh, my God, does that <laughs> seem like, right? That, is that how showbiz works? You just leave in the middle of a contract? Right. So clearly we were fine with that at that time. Well, we, we, we learned, but we also thought like we, we, did, we did tell somebody. We're like, okay, we got to tell somebody. So we told the stage manager, like, look, we're not going to be here tomorrow. Yeah. You need to get someone else. And then we just split. Yeah, it was horrible and a bad thing to do. And uh, I think, I, yeah, we went back to, I remember we went back. I think it was probably what, 90, we started opening for Robin in 86. Yeah, they said, you'll never come back to this town. Yeah, in 91 or 92, we were at Harris opening for Robin Williams. And I remember there was still talk around that, around like the guys we had seen. They were like, oh, yeah, man, people still, the people who were there remembered that. It was a really stupid thing to do. So I'll drop everything, listeners, if a manager or an agent tells you to leave in the middle of the night. Don't, don't. We didn't know. And she had said, oh, yeah. they're sending the checks to the wrong person, oh, yeah, yeah. some BS thing. What happened was she had Michael Chirik in Aruba and he hurt his back. And so we were going to replace Michael Chirik. I don't know why she didn't get someone else to fill in and keep us at that gig. But what happened with Simone Finner was after that engagement in Aruba, we get back home because that, that was three more months. So it was a six month total, yeah. three months. And we had the same pay. But there yeah. we got free food. So it was a step up in Aruba. Yeah, that was huge. And we got to live in Aruba, which is nice. Body surf. Remember the name of the sure. condos? The Turibana Hotel. Wow, very nice. Yeah, yeah. And of course, tell people who we got to work with because he was a very classy gentleman who had a huge career in variety. Yeah. Alain Caboutier. Uh, Alain Caboutier. Who did Ioni, you know, this mechanical, this really old form of automation. It was it was incredible. Yeah, he had this acrobatic puppet that did acrobats and flips, and he was remarkable. And such a classy act. 
and such a little kid off stage. I mean, here's this guy. He had Parkinson's. He was probably what pushing 70? seventy. Yeah, late mid sixties, late sixties. Yeah, and he and he's body surfing with us and having water fights with us and laughing. And then you go on stage and he was this total just gentleman. Yeah, he had his hands would shake because he had Parkinson's. Yep. And they had to go in this little booth. Yep. And he had to do this very intricate mechanical because the the puppet had no electronics. It was all mechanical. Yeah, it was an act that could have been done and was done in, I think, the late 1800s. Yeah, it would sit on if the you park. Google automation, uh, Ioni, I-O-N-I, and Alain, A-L-A-I-N, you'll see uh, there's pictures of him. He's a legend. But this is a guy we met, and we're like, wow, this is like showbiz royalty. Because he was an acrobat, and then, yep. when he, he could, then he became a juggler. And one of his tricks as a juggler was the head balance, yeah. a ring on each foot, yeah. while juggling three, three clubs. So he's upside down on his head on a pedestal. And then he's juggling three clubs above him while doing a, a ring on each foot. And he used yeah. to do that on his partner's head, like a head-to-head -head balance. Yeah, what a great man. You know, My, just a real, a real gentleman and uh, amazing. And I, I loved his sense of play. He was... My favorite story. This is my favorite. Oh yeah, you got to tell the Ellen. Yeah. Okay. So we had we we were in Aruba. We had a cast of, of course, uh, dancers and the uh, singers, and and Ellen was the other variety act. Roberto Antonio and Roberto Antonio, the uh -oh. singer, of yeah. course, who was just saying "Yo, Yo soy. soy." Yeah, was his big song. We'd have these water fights, and here's this guy, sixty-five, small guy, like five feet tall. He's like a pit bull, though. He had, you know, he was like a, yeah, like a, yeah. yeah, he just had muscles. He could still do a perfect handstand, loved to body surf, just a great dude. So one night, you know, this rowdiness ensues, there's water fights, and I'm in my room, and there's a knock on my door. Daniel! I'm like, oh my God, let me in! Daniel, let me in! I'm like, oh my God, they're, they're, they're picking on poor Alain. I open the door, whoosh! A big glass of water right in my face. <laughs> I'm like, oh man. Did you sucker me in, Ellen? So much for the classy European artiste. And he was just laughing like a little boy. Yeah. But so then we get home from this gig, and then we meet with her, because she's supposed to then get us on cruise ships. And what happens What happens with Simone Finner? Right. Oh, so, oh, so yeah, this is the great Simone. You know, uh, imagine we'll pick up the pace on the history here, because we're only to 85. I know, exactly. <laughs> but just some, some key points, though. Simone went loco. I mean, she was going to get us on cruise ships, and she takes us to her apartment, She's got bulging varicose veins. You could visually take her heartbeat through these veins. She's in a nightgown. Yeah, and she invites us in, and she goes, boys, sit down. I have something to tell you. And she stands up on her, on her piano bench, and we're going, oh, my God, she's going to fall. And I was a little scared. And she goes, boys, I have something to tell you. I've never told anyone. I'm George Gershwin's daughter. Oh, man. I'll be opening my own show in Vegas, and you can work with yeah. me. Like... You can work with me because I'm opening. I'm going public with this. Yeah, it never happened. I, you know, man, well, what I... happened was... Dude, I think she's still alive, though. Yeah, but what happened with her was, so we were waiting. She goes, don't worry, boys. Well, I'll have you on the ship out in a few weeks. And uh, Right. And then she went into George Schlatter's office, allegedly, because she might still be alive, even though she'd be 100 years old by now. Right. And she tra and George Schlatter was the producer of Laughing, and he, he became a, a producer of other mm -hmm. variety shows. Right. So I'm sure they had some relationship. She went in and started trashing his office. Oh, And she yeah. had to be removed by security, and she was committed. And so she literally was declared incompetent and was decommitted for into a allegedly an asylum. And at that moment, I think we felt like, okay, when your manager goes crazy and gets committed, I guess that kind of breaks the contract. Right. Yeah. Because we then we started working cruise ships on our own. We started working the Admiral line, right? Yeah. We had met up with a guy who had got us on those, or no? Did he not? Well, we we went through Barry Ball, uh, who's still working. Oh, okay. uh, I think his, his company's called Spotlight. Yeah, there were a couple yeah. of ships that went out of San Pedro because we were both living in Los Angeles. 
Mm-hmm. And we started working on the Star Dancer and the Azure Seas. Right, yeah. Were the two ships of the Admiral line. God, so different than today's cruise ships. Just these little oh, crappy yeah. alcohol-serving bins in the stage. The ceilings were low. and Yeah, terrible yeah. stages, terrible accommodations. But I think the money was better. The money, like, doubled. I think we were making, like, 1500 a week at that point. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, we were paying commissions and everything. And But I remember then, so we, get, we started doing some cruise ships. We also started doing some work in L.A. Like, we did a show called It's Magic at the Variety Arts Theater. Remember the It's Magic? Yeah. And which led, of course, That's to right. the show. Sure, that would have been, uh, I, think we, I think we started that in February of 86 because I met uh, Annie right before, I met my wife now of, of 27, 28 years, uh, right before that. She came to the first time we ever saw it. We saw the cast before us. Yeah. And I picked up Annie. I, had, I was a friend, a friend of hers and we grabbed Annie on the way in. And uh, yeah, that was amazing. That was the first night meeting her. And yeah, then we were in It's Magic. That began the rest of the chapter called The Rest is History. Well, yeah. what happened was they were putting on together a show of street performers called Hats Off. It was going to be a show with a host and then a, a lineup of great street performers from around the country. Yeah, that was a great show. It was a great show. A lot of good acts. Matt Plendel, uh, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny Fox, Matt Plendel, Bob, uh, Biker Bob. Ed Alonzo. Um, Ed Alonzo. Yeah, it's certainly gone. Do you think Larry Clark, who I think is still performing. Ken Sonkin, who's a huge successful director. Ken Sonkin. That was an amazing cast. And we were all, uh, yeah, we, we met and did a show in the Variety Arts Theater in downtown Los Angeles. Classic theater owned by the uh, brother of Milt Larson, who runs the Magic Ca- owns the Magic Castle. I don't know if he still owns it, but certainly runs the Magic he's, Castle. He's still involved because I met him recently and he's not involved in the day-to-day running of it anymore but he's still a figurehead of some sort but that was the show that changed everything because do you think the uh variety art center is still in la oh gosh i don't know i haven't heard about it for years i'm sure yeah. it's not doing what it was doing right 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 well it's funny it wasn't even really doing what it was back then hats off was like a rekindling of that theater because it was downtown los angeles was really wasn't a place you wanted to have a show because people right. oh my to gosh downtown no. los angeles yeah many times coming into the theater i was accosted by homeless and and people sure. wanting money as I, as I was going into the theater but that was a show because milt larson the owner was also friends with freddie de corvita yep. who was a producer on the tonight show so they wanted to try to get at least one act from that show onto the tonight show and that was around the time that i saw an ad in this drama log which was another entertainment magazine and it was a, a guy it said looking for acts for cruise ships now was he was joe the one who got us on the ships because that was the ad yeah, I thought that I thought that was the connection. Yeah, yeah. that was the connection. Because in the drama log, there was an ad that said, looking for acts for cruise ships, management. And I remember we, we invited him out to the sh- this Hats Off show. Mm-hmm. And he watched our show and he said, I can get Jim McCauley, the talent booker from The Tonight Show, to come and see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gosh. Our manager, his name was Joe Gunches. That's a great line, though, man, to hear somebody say, I can get the guy from The Tonight Show. And I, I personally, I felt I was so unready for that. I mean, I was, we were wearing tights, what, three months earlier at a festival to have the guy from The Tonight Show. But yeah, Jim McCauley came out to Hats Off. And, I, and I'm pretty sure it was a guarantee that one act from Hats Off was going to be on The Tonight Show. A lot of things came together. I think also we were getting some vibe because I remember meeting Mac and Jamie. Yep, Mac or and another Jamie. another comedy team. And they said, you know... We were the ones who told Jim McCauley about you. Mm. So there was quite a, I think, a sort of a convergence of people being talking about our act, them wanting an act on the show, meeting Joe Gunches, who was able to get right. Jim to... And I remember doing the show and thinking, I didn't see Jim McCauley. And not that I would have known who he was, but I thought he would have come backstage or whatever. So I figured he wasn't even there. Right, yeah, we didn't, yeah. But of course he was there. We heard from Joe that 
he liked our act and wanted us to come down and meet him yeah. at the studios and talk things over and run through what we would do if we were on the show. So remember that first show, we were going to do just our club passing routine. The idea we had or was that we'll come out, do a couple opening lines, and immediately invite Johnny to help us. Mm, I think yeah, we yeah. were intimidated. I think we thought, well, the sooner we get Johnny out. But he was. this is why he was Jim McCauley, because he said, yep. didn't you guys do that thing with the apple and uh, carrots? Didn't you do something else? Because yep. Why don't you establish yourself first? Do a bit first. I hear more and more comedians. I listen to the Carson podcast, and you know, you listen to any of these comedian podcasts, and they always talk about how Jim McCauley had such an eye for what would work on The Tonight Show. And uh, it was no no wonder he had such a long career as a you know, talent segment producer for The Tonight Show. He just, he could pull it out of you. He knew he knew our set way better than we did. And he said, do this, do this, do this, and, and in you go. Yeah. And then I remember, so we get, we get our date. And this really was, I think, sort of the start of what I call the, the real Raspini career. So we had our preliminary, our our, our stuff that got us ready for this moment. And I was lucky in that I never really watched The Tonight Show. Hmm. When I was a kid, my thing was, I want to get in Guinness Book of World Records, and I want to get on Circus of the Stars. Right. Because you know me, I'm not a late night guy. So I never really would, I knew of course Johnny Carson and when Air Jazz was on or Michael Davis. Sure. But I never really even thought of it really, like that's a show I want to get on because I just hmm. never watched it. Right. So I wasn't quite as intimidated maybe as somebody who that was their dream to get on the show. Right, right. But I do remember that it was all pretty cool. We were pretty loose until the very moment that we we're about to be introduced. And, <laughs> and there's a if you go to the Carson podcast, there's a, a podcast with this gentleman. Yes, he was the man. I don't know his name. I'm not, my memory's not that good. Yep, same man. Yep, who would open the curtain for the guest, and he did it for years and years and years. Oh yeah, and I remember uh, it was such an incredible thing to hear that podcast. Uh, with him because he was talking about it and I was like, oh my gosh, I remember every single thing this guy's talking about right now. I remember he, we were joking around, we were kidding around, then all of a sudden like it hit us and he could see that and he goes, boys, don't tighten up now. Yep. And that was Irving Davis. <laughs> Irving Davis. Oh really? Did you remember it or did you? No, I just went to the Carson <laughs> Podcast website. But yeah, that's the guy. Great episode. Uh, and we were lucky in that it was a spring break crowd. So I remember going out and we did like our first joke, which was probably ill-planned because it was like, yeah. we're the Raspini brothers and we're Beatrice. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a big, big ad campaign at the time, something like that. Yeah. I remember we got a big laugh and we were like off to the races at that point. We were off yep. to the races. It was just like, oh. Yeah, it was. We were back in front of a Renaissance Fair audience and it felt so right. And that was, that was very good. It's like, they're buying this. I can't believe they're buying this. <laughs> yeah. But then, like you're saying, we had a couple of drops. One of them could be attributed to the fact that you were wearing suspenders. Yep, yep. And they started to slide off your shoulder. Yep. And then you try to shrug it back up onto your shoulder. While juggling. While yeah. juggling. Sure. Why not? And then becomes, in my mind, the most important catch in the Raspini brother career. Wow. I don't know if I know this. Well, I think I've told you because when we started doing seven back to back. Ah, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I would have a, a, a problem. Uh, over flipping. I start to tense up. My arm would get all tense mm. and lose all sort of feel. And I would just start barbarically throwing the clubs and they would become more and more flip. Right. So yep. we do the trick the first time. And I think, I don't know if I was over flipping, but whatever it was, we had a drop. And then I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous, you know, obviously. Right. And so the second one, you can watch every throw is getting a little bit worse. Oh yeah, they were exactly. It was a, it was just getting a little more and more over flipped each one. But the very last throw, I think I don't know if we were doing 10 throws or seven throws, whatever it was, Probably seven, you caught yeah. as a perfect two and a half. Oh. 
Because I, I went back and I thought, and then we finished up. We did the stack up, cup between the legs. Yep. You got a big ovation. Everyone successful. Of course, got invited back. My feeling was if we had dropped on that second try, either we would have just sort of gone on to the ending anyways. But if we had had to try it a third time. Oh, man, that's hard. I don't think I, I, don't think I could have handled it. I just don't think. I, and imagine if we had just sort of fallen apart at that moment. Ooh, ooh. And that, that would have been the end. Uh, yeah, that could have been the end, of course. Yeah, uh, the second try on a trick on TV, high-pressure TV show, is awesome to hit, as we all know. I mean, people <laughs> miss on purpose. But boy, the third, it's it's not awesome. Especially when we were already going kind of long. I mean, our first spot was like eight minutes. Yeah, and, and the, the days back then, you know, worth mentioning, the Tonight Show in those days, Johnny came out, did the monologue, they went to a commercial, and they came back. And that was a top guest. And both times we were on with Johnny, we had that top spot, which was seven to eight minutes right after the monologue. Unheard of in today's world. It should have been a big celebrity. It should have been like Mel Gibson, so-and-so. Yep. And if we have time, the Raspini brothers. Absolutely. If we have time, the Raspini, exactly. <laughs> Not the case. No. For some reason, we went on first, and I think we had... Shelley Long and the woman from The Color Purple, who I think her name was, her name was Margaret Avery. Yeah, Margaret Avery. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And then, of course, that led to our, our really our, our first real engagement of a, in, in show business, I think, because yep. we, that, what that led us to, that led us to a very good job. Yeah, that led us to apparently Billy Crystal watched The Tonight Show at night and he, uh, he, he got in touch with the right people in the morning. And uh, let's see, that must have been, that was March 23rd. And I think we started opening for Billy that summer. Because then we opened for Rob and his buddy uh, starting October. So, yeah, I think it was August. We probably went out and did a, a 10 night or something. Yeah, our first gig was uh, one week, Atlantic City. One week. And I think we made 10 grand or something. We got $10,000. So, for you people listening, and room, food, and beverage, which a lot, of, a lot of things change. And I know it doesn't happen that way on TV nowadays that much anymore when you're on a spot. But boy, that was huge. That was all of a sudden a five digit check, being flown somewhere, being fed, put up in a great hotel all the drinks we wanted to sign for, hanging out with celebrities, real spotlights. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it was very real all of a sudden. And thank God for all the past we had had. To me, no more stressful or different once that first laugh happened than any Renaissance Fair show. That's a tough spot. The opening act's a tough spot. They're not yep. there to see you. But that really led to probably the bulk of our career over the next, what would you say, seven, eight years? Sure. And that was, uh, you and I both have a great collection of autographed juggling clubs. 25 of them or something, all from celebrities that we opened for. We became very well known in that world because we were funny, yet not topical. Yep. And we knew how to hit time, man. Like some people we opened for, I think it was Tony Bennett or Dean Martin. Or it was Tony Bennett. Yeah. He was like, his manager said, Mr. Bennett likes to walk out of his dressing room exactly when the show, uh, at 14 minutes after. Yep. And he likes to not break his pace and walk on at 17 after. So do 17 minutes. And yeah, I mean, that got us in and we were very good at hitting our time. I, I don't remember a time when we ever really went over. Well, like you said, for the comedians, because we got to work with all the big comedians. Yeah, we had a funny act, but we didn't step on their toes. We didn't talk about girlfriends or politics or the economy. Yep. So we opened up and who was your who was your favorite? What Who do you think had sort of the best show or what was uh, from that moment? Let's try to pick a couple of key experiences. Sure. You know, I learned a lot from uh, opening for everyone we opened for about professionalism, about show quality. Hey, from Patti LaBelle, quite often there were three white people in the room, you and I and her manager. And I remember, not in the room, but in the theater. I mean, do you remember to have that memory? I remember what she said to us. She said, because we went in and I remember saying to her, oh, it's so nice to be working for you. Oh, and she yeah. said, she said, honey, you're not working for me. Yeah. We're working together. That was classy. If this was a video podcast, I'd hold my arm up, but I have goosebumps like on both arms right now because I remember something she did in the middle of every show. 
she would um, do this acapella bit. We're in a 1,200, 1,500, 2,000-seat theater, and she would put the mic out, and she would just sing about what was happening in her life. And to hear her sing thanking the Raspini brothers, I mean, man, I would tear up in the back of the theater every time. I, I could not believe that was happening. The entire audience, we did cities like Detroit, we did mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., Atlantic City, places like that, and her audience was all black. And wonderful, great, but I remember there being a very intense story I was telling myself about, can I get in here? Can we get in here and win them over? You know, it's, we're clearly the white elephants in the room. How do we deal with this? And I remember you and I just bringing everything we learned from gathering crowds out by the crane or at a big festival where you just had to compete. And we brought that. And within the first 10, 15 seconds, we won. We were there. That was a big feeling for me to be able to do that. But so I learned from opening from her not to judge the audience, but to go out in something you came up with, which was no matter how bad an audience is, treat them like the best audience you've ever had. And that's always been a real stable for us. I always say, uh, if you pretend an audience is good, sometimes they're fooled into believing it themselves. Yeah. And they actually take on, because as long as if you go like, oh, this crowd sucks and you guys, oh my gosh, yeah. come on, you guys, then they kind of resent you. But if you just sort of like play along, like, hey, this is great. Aren't we having fun? And yep, they, they do. Start having fun. Yeah. And then from comedians, there were, of course, more lessons. You know, an interview with us would not be fair unless we mentioned the, the great influence we got from an act called Puke and Snot. Oh, we yeah. used to watch them. And for me, they were real teachers of character, of each performer bringing something to the mix instead of just being the same. You know, Mark and Joe were amazing and I learned a lot from watching them. Learned a ton from Robin Williams. I think over the course of six years, we probably opened him from 86 to 92. I have posters and a couple here in my office of opening for him all these years. And I never missed a Robin show. I walked right from where we were on center stage, right into the wing. And you and I both just grabbed seats. And yep. that was like that was like master's class, how he could be so comfortable to literally close with something one night and the next night walk out on stage and you hear an open with it. And you're like, oh, my God, who does that? Who has balls that size? I and remember it, uh, the lesson I learned from him really specifically was this idea that he had this huge library of material in his head that he could he could draw upon. So it would appear very spontaneous if someone said whatever it was, cocaine or, or college or whatever it was, he was able to go into a bit that a lot of it was something he had done before, but he's able to make it seem so spontaneous. Oh, quick. And then you realize doing a spot, like we started doing a lot of TV spots that were only yep. six or seven minutes. It was like, why not steal from yourself? If you have all mm -hmm. this material, move it around. Yeah, it's not like this joke has to go in the club routine. This joke has to go in the... So we were able to move stuff around and just watching him was really a... Oh, that's right. That's, that's really interesting. I never related it to coming from there, but that's... yeah. yeah. I mean, we would grab jokes from other routines and go, oh, this will be perfect. Let's do this bit with these jokes. So we, we, I remember on a few TV shows, we would go on with something relatively new of course. and just grab jokes that we, uh, yeah, that we knew killed. So during that time was the comedy boom. I mean, we really yeah. hit it lucky in that we, we got on the Tonight Show, which was actually our first show, which was yeah. not, a, not the way you want to plan. You would like to have that, <laughs> like a buildup. You could do Comic Strip Live. It did make Merv Griffin simple. Yes, we did Merv Griffin. Comic Strip Live, Caroline's, yeah. Evening at the Empire. Well, yeah, we were always like, well, we got The Tonight Show in our belt, and that was uh, that was kind of a fun thing. And then doing The Tonight Show again a few months later. One of my favorite things I want to mention about Robin, though, and I don't know if, if this made a big memory on you, but was the fact that before every single time, you know, no matter how big the stadium, and there were usually university stadiums, three, four, five thousand, six thousand 5,000, people, he would grab the mic yeah. from backstage and introduce us in some funny voice. I got a couple of Russian boys. They're my friends. They came all the way from Moscow. 
<laughs> yeah, the audience is like, holy cow, Robin's introducing these guys, man. You know, he's not just backstage in the limo hanging out. And and you can hear Robin Williams laughing. If you've ever performed. I remember Robin yeah. laughing backstage. It's the sweetest music in 33 years on stage to me is just doing some joke and just hearing that cutting laugh coming from the wing right behind us. And I was like, wow, what a, what a trip. A lot of transformation, man. Yeah, so for like seven, eight years we did Billy Crystal. And we got to do some old school guys like Dean Martin. I remember they said, don't talk to Dean Martin. Don't approach him. Just don't even look at him. Yeah. We were like, oh, we got to talk to Dean Martin. So the very yeah. last day we, and he was very nice, very cordial, but he had he lost his son, Dino. And the last thing he said was, didn't someone tell you not to talk to me? And I love that. Yeah, he said, yeah. Uh, I'll sign your clubs, but then I'm going to break your arms. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's someone... Frank Sinatra. I think he said that. Yeah. <laughs> but we never got to open for it. That was the my one big regret of everybody. If I could have yep. said, I would have liked to open for Sinatra, even though I'm not a fan necessarily. Right. But that's that was the name because you had Michael Davis. Uh, you know, Dries. Tom had Tom had that gig sewed, sewed up. Yeah. No one was getting that. Yeah. And then. So, OK, so then at a certain point, the opening act market starts to die. It really just starts to diminish right. to the point of non-existence today. I mean, maybe yep. someone takes their friend out with them or whatever. Yep. But it used to be like and what happened was, I think, in the casinos, they realized if they get the people out into the audience and we're only doing like 15 minutes, but if we get them out in the casinos, 15 minutes earlier, not only did we save on the opening acts fee, but we're making millions of dollars. Yeah, they had a number attached to each minute. I remember some of the opening acts were a little longer. Did we get yeah. 30 with some people? Well, when we did like like Robin Williams or Billy Crystal, we usually would do our act, and there'd be an intermission. Yeah, yeah, right, intermission. But in the casinos, we mostly did like 15, 20. Gotcha. Yeah, because yeah, in the casinos, you were just to help people finish getting seated and make it so the headliner didn't walk out to a cold crowd. And the only act that ever made us change our act and actually shorten it Namer, namer. Well, we started doing 30 minutes. Yep. And by the end, we were doing like 10 minutes. Yep. Because the performer was doing so badly with the audience and with the press, she she wanted to blame us. And that, of course, was the great Roseanne Barr. Who, who did the classy move of showing us a new tattoo on her ass. I got a tattoo on my butt of my husband. Do you want to see it? Like In the lobby, in the lobby of, a, of a very classy hotel in Detroit, I remember. My favorite Roseanne Barr move was we were working in uh, Bally's opening for Tom Jones. And we were also going to be opening for Roseanne like a week later. Right, right, right. Yep. So our name was actually on like three marquees at a certain point in Vegas. Yeah, in Vegas. You could see our name on three marquees at one time. We'd was... just been somewhere else, like a comedy club or something. So mm -hmm. we were... Yeah, we were at Catch. Yeah. yeah. Catch a Rising Star, Roseanne, then we we're going to open up for Tom Jones. And I remember that the Hilton, the, the Hilton was, I think. It was yeah. that Imperial or the Hilton. I think it was the Hilton at the time. Yep. The entertainment director comes to us and says, he comes to our dressing room and goes, oh, wait till you see the dressing room you're going to get at uh, the Hilton. Hilton. Much nicer. The same one, I remember he said the same one that Elvis's band used to use. Yeah. So we get there and our, our dressing room is a converted toilet. <laughs> Literally like a bathroom with like, where they put carpeting on the floor. Maybe it was the only thing they did to change it from a restaurant. Like a broom closet. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, a tray with ice and a few soft drinks. Like the worst, like, like that's it. And what happened was, this was the time she was married to Tom Arnold, is that she took the star dressing room. Tom Arnold took the opening acts dressing room. And they put us up in the, the converted bathroom because she had no, she only thought about herself. They only thought about themselves. It was very, uh, I'd never seen such a self-centered celebrity of all the ones we worked with. So yeah, incredible. And she was getting heckled because what would happen was she would go up, no, uh, Tom, Ar we would go up and we'd do our 25, 30. And then Tom Arnold would go up and he would do 25 or 30. Yep. And then finally she would go up. But she started getting heckled from the audience because her act wasn't really a headline act. Right. And the brilliance inside of her blamed that on us. She said, because we're breaking the fourth wall by bringing up volunteers, she's getting heckled. 
Which I don't know if there's a comedian in the world that doesn't break the... I don't know if there is a fourth wall in a comedy show, but there you go. Well, I think by bringing people up on stage, she felt like the audience was then had the license to get involved or some BS. She sucked. She sucked. Yep. And then, yep. so she managed to cut out the, the uh, volunteer bits. But yep. then I remember a review came out which said, my advice, get there early to see the opening act, then lower your expectations as far as they'll go. Yeah, I still have that uh, review in my scrapbook. It's, it so was she's incredible. like... Oh, they liked you. And she made us cut out some more stuff. Yep. And by the end, we were doing eight minutes and we're still doing well. And she was still doing poorly. So, yeah, by the end of the tour, it didn't matter how little we did. But then you, you had kind of a revelation because we're doing these opening acts. We've got a ton of TV. But all of a sudden, work is kind of slowing up. And we're, we're feeling some dissatisfaction with our manager because Joe Gunches has been with us this whole time. Right. Like seven, eight years, he was our manager. Right, yeah. And there were a lot of good times. He got us on the, the, the White House show for President Reagan. Yep. His thing was work with celebrities and try to keep climbing the showbiz ladder. Yeah, which isn't a terrible strategy. I mean, I mean, it's never terrible to jump in the wake of something that's got that's that's pulling a big draft. I mean, why wouldn't you? The thing for you and I was that wasn't a priority. We wanted to make more money. And we want, yeah, we wanted to make some money. I mean, we were like, you know, let's let's make some money here. Let's let's convert all this stuff we're doing into bigger uh Bigger paydays. Yeah, we had done this uh, corporate date. We had somebody, and it was fairly early. I remember it being like, uh, man, like 88 or something. Yeah, it was for it was, 50s. Thrifty yes, it was, a, and it was somebody had come up to us at something lower we were working and said, do you guys, could you guys MC a conference? And I was like, man, it's like one of those moments that you remember in the past, like in slow-mo. Can you guys? <laughs> I think it was a trade show. Wasn't it a, a trade show at first, though? The first one was a... Yeah, I think it was a trade show and maybe some executive meetings or something yeah. where we introduced... But man, it was just like, it was a paycheck. It wasn't even the biggest money we'd ever made. It was It was good though. I remember it being 5,000, 8,000. 8,000 bucks, I think, or something. Yeah. But yeah, for a couple of days. And, and at the time, it was like, we hadn't really seen a ton of money like that for working indoors, getting paid in a check, air conditioning, uh, not a lot of work and, and just fun. So, and that that really got under my craw, this whole idea of corporate entertainment of, and, and I was always, Joe was very focused on do the celebrity stuff. I was very focused on if you can do one thing, all you need to do is blueprint out the system for you being able to do it again. And that became a huge focus of mine. How did we get that gig? What did we do when we were there? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? How could we do more of it? That became the real focus. Even when the uh, opening act stuff was going well through the late 80s and early 90s, it was always just some corporate dates were coming in. And, and then when uh, opening acts totally tapered off, we, we walked away from that gladly because the corporate stuff was just, it was, it was where it was. And Yeah, and we had the TV spots. Yeah, and that sort of rode us through what we found and loved and just kept doing and as life went on. And yeah, we had the TV spots. We had the celebrity endorsements. We had a great video. You know, you were great on the phone, getting good good amounts of money for us. I never yeah. complained about the yeah. money we were able to make. And for the next, I don't know, till the, the crash maybe in 2001 or the 9-11 the, the, uh, put a dent in our Yeah, I mean, sure, there's economic things that came yeah. along along the way, you know, and riding the waves. But, you know, having good connections, good networking, good relationships with producers. We got to stay in the, the top field. I got no complaints about how it all plays out. Then I know I had a serious collarbone injury, this little metal pin I keep on my desk here. During times like that, you get to sort of take a look at life and see where uh, where it's at and build it up. And during that time, I kind of got some good feelings about maybe teaching and doing some online work. And, and I tell you, man, every time someone says to me, why did you get into teaching all the stuff you're doing? If it works so well, why don't you just do it? And I had a, a, a great line that came to me one time. I said, if you can tell me one thing I haven't done in show business, 
I will gladly get back into it to satisfy that. And uh, man, we did, it was a great run. It was an amazing run. And still, we got some bookings out in the future. And I, I like to turn down the volume on it and do it now more for a novelty and a fun sake and a chance to get out on the road. As far as the main income thing, life has uh, taken me some fun other ways. And I know you're getting to do things that you've always wanted to do. So, Well, I mean, I think we've gotten to the point where, like you say, we've sort of done everything in this field to do. And it's like, well, do you want to create a second act or do you want to just sort of keep doing it as it sort of diminishes? Because the corporate market as well is, is not a quite as vibrant. There's still a lot of acts doing quite well there. Yep. Yeah, we got to a point where I think we decided there'll, there'll always be a Raspini Brothers. Yeah, it's, we're not going to have the ugly breakup. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't see us breaking up. We've always gotten along pretty well. We've had our moments over the years, but nothing serious, I don't think. I mean, a, an argument here or there. We talked about a couple times, we talked about a time at the Texas Renaissance Festival, a time at uh, doing low budget gigs that we made those changes. And I remember the exact one where it came into my mind, wow, what's next for me? What's the next chapter? What do I want to do? And it was after my collarbone accident when I'd already spent a couple months not being able to juggle and thinking about, wow, what else, what have I become good at? What's, what, what else is there in my life to to, to create a second chapter with. I, we had a gig in Orlando and I was getting ready to drive up my driveway here, which you've been at many times. It's a, it's a long drive up and out. And it's kind of me living my acreage I live on, my uh, views of the Sierra Mountains and a place that makes me very happy. And I thought to myself, I'm leaving right now for two and a half days to a, a level of maybe 90, 95%. I know every single thing that's going to happen for the next two and a half days. And that became very powerful to me as far as I'm not creating my next chapter. I'm not doing, I'm just doing something right now for the paycheck, a good paycheck, but I'm just doing it for the paycheck. And I, during those few months in bed after my accident, I had come to a place where I just thought, I really want to realize more about life than just the next paycheck. So that was a, a, an impactful drive for me heading up and realizing for two and a half days to be on stage for an hour. I knew everything that was going to happen. And you've been a very good influence on me because you've really created something in the real world. It wasn't like you had an idea or a fantasy, like I'm going to do this. And I really, because I could see the work you put out to oh, create yeah. what you've created. You, you went to seminars, you studied books. Yeah, it's huge. You really learned how to do it in the real way. And you've created a very successful coaching business, mentorship business. And now you're on to the 30-day sugar-free. You're just this is just the start of Barry Friedman Entrepreneur. This is your second chapter, and I believe it'll be more successful. Yeah, it's yeah financially, it's it's uh, well, just with your life. I think for me, yeah. I'm a juggler. I'm still juggling. I do solo work. I'll go out and do someone's birthday party for 150 bucks, just because that's what I mean. I'm a juggler. It's yep. it's in my it's in my DNA. That's what I do. But I think you, you've always been more technical, like more into computers, ham radios, right. business. Yeah, I yeah. really see you flourishing and really finding the right fit for you in this uh, second part of your life. Yeah, it's going well. I think I started thinking about this in 07 and here we are in 15. So it's been eight years of very pervasive study in my life, uh, connecting with people, building relationships that matter, looking inside a lot to what I want to do so it doesn't end up one day I'm in my car going, okay, I know what I'm going to do for the next two and a half days and I'm I'm bored of it. it. It's been good. It started with a little site called Get More Corporate Gigs that uh, is uh, now off the market. Then that led to running something called Showbiz Blueprint, a group coaching program that I run once a year in the spring. Completed the 2015 edition of it recently. 25 people at a time. I take them through a very intensive 10-week group coaching program on the business side of show business. That led into some private coaching, really higher level private coaching, strategic coaching for entertainers that are moving even faster than than they were able to with Showbiz Blueprint. 
And then taking all that knowledge and applying it to something that was really a part of my life, living with a diet that doesn't include any added processed or refined sugar. I mean, I was great. You can speak to this. If we walked into a dressing room, man, and there was four chocolate chip cookies, I'd eat three of them and leave one as a courtesy for someone else. I just loved sugar. I was addicted to it beyond words. On Leap Day 2012, my nine-year-old at the time asked me, what are you going to leap for Leap Day? Which was, I thought was a great interpretation of the holiday. And we had just eaten a big frozen yogurt with gummy bears and peanut butter cups. And I said, I'm going to leap sugar because I felt like crap. And then I never went back. Starting March 1st, I said, oh, I'm going to try 30 days. And then six months later, that had become such a part of my life. People started asking me about it. I put together an online course using what I had learned about coaching, about the internet, about building membership sites, about advertising, about getting a message in front of targeted uh, audiences. And boy, that now, Dan, that's a, uh, it's, that's a big part of my life is uh, running that, connecting with people. And well, I've often said like juggling, unfortunately, sort of like the, being at the little kid's table of show business. Mm. that no matter how famous you get, you're going to be kind of like a tall midget. It's like, well, it's not really playing as much in the real world as you could because it's sort of a very sort of insular, small field. But now you've sort of approached this thing that really could go, like I do this podcast and I maybe if 600 people, 700 people listen to it, that's a lot in the juggling community. Yeah, yeah. But you're talking about health and fitness and stuff that really affects the whole world. So your market really is anybody who eats, anybody who's interested in health, anybody who wants to feel better and look better. So that's a that's a winner. Right. And that's the top of the funnel. The top of the funnel is anyone with a mouth. And then it narrows down, you know, and my audience has become clearly women. Ninety eight percent of my mail email list and membership site are women in the age range of anywhere from about 35 to 60. It's been interesting getting used to talking to that demographic, being a leader in that demographic and, and how to speak to them. I wrote a book that's doing very well. I went, I learned how to go on TV. I did 25 TV shows with my book right after I wrote it, uh, during and after I wrote it. I did a webinar this morning and I think anyone listening to this who's an entertainer, I did a webinar this morning about getting on TV, about using our skills. You know, We're not talking heads. We have the ability to capture an audience and to hold attention. Uh, to deliver a message in a way people will watch. I think it's a, a huge disservice if you care about something, if you have information about something, to not get in and talk about how that can change the world and do it on TV. Local news is the best way to celebrity right now. And of course, we'll definitely include a link to all of your services and people can do some more research and find out all the great stuff Barry's involved with. Uh, before we end, I want to thank you, of course, for all the work you've done to make my life yeah, better. And Oh, it's been so good. And uh, to thank you for the adventures we've shared over these, <laughs> this last 35 or so odd years. And I'm sure yeah. we have a few more adventures still coming up. Uh, oh, my gosh. Before yeah. we, we put a close on this book, that's the Raspini Brothers. There'll always be a Raspini. I remember one of the highlights of our career, and I have a, a club to prove it, the night we met Walter Matthau and George Burns, because we both love that movie, The Sunshine Boys. The Finger! Again, again with the finger. Yeah. So we love that movie and we got to perform at George Burns 95th birthday party and we got met them together. And for me, that was a pinnacle and having that club signed by both of them is one of my favorite possessions. But you know, like them, I think Raspini brothers will end when, when one of us kicks off. I'll go Barry. <laughs> Why do I assume you're going to die first? I don't know. Oh, I imagine <laughs> even with my sugar-free diet. Uh, go, Barry, never again. Will I get the finger? Again, Never the finger. again. Again with the finger. I'll always remember you because my left hand, where I catch the clubs for so many years, yeah, nice bruise that never has gone away. Never. Every once in a while, a club hits there. I get this stinging pain. And that pain makes me think of Barry Friedman. I know whenever we pass clubs now, uh, the first couple catches, you have this face on, look on your face. It looks <laughs> like someone just put an electronic... Uh, probe up your uh, backside well the solo work never bothers me but when we pass That's knives good. or clubs it hits that spot 
and it, yep. it just stings. It gives you a stinger, and uh, the whole finger goes numb, and I get that look like, why are you doing this to me? But it's worth it. No. <laughs> exactly. Hey, thanks so much, Barry. Yeah, man. Good one. Enjoy. Thanks for the podcast. I listen to them out on hikes and bike rides quite often. And that's the story. It's a little bit truncated, but that's the story of the Raspini Brothers with Barry Friedman on the Drop Everything Podcast. Thanks, Barry. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that stroll down memory lane with me and my special guest on Drop Everything Podcast number 21, Barry Friedman. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association. Thanks, guys, at the IJA. If you want more information about this great group of jugglers, go to juggle.org. Thanks once again to my engineer, Karen. Now, drop everything except when you're juggling.